This morning's epistle reading takes us again to the book of Ephesians, and this time to a text that I confess that I struggle with. I'm actually really glad that the lectionary pushes us to engage in texts that move us beyond our comfort zones. I think that's a good thing. It's good to be challenged. It is good to wrestle with the text. As I dug into this passage from Ephesians 6, I began my wrestling in verse 12. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, as I understand him, Paul is talking about a spiritual reality, an evil spiritual reality that seems to be swirling about in the universe. His description almost sounds like something from Star Wars, where the universal is gripped in a struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Some of us have no trouble at all accepting this worldview. Others of us may have more difficulty with it. I mean, the fact is, we live in a very materialistic world. And by that, I mean that in our world, reality is defined as that which we can see and touch and smell and taste and hear. Quite frankly, it may be a stretch for some of us to believe in a God that cannot be seen, let alone to believe in the existence of some evil spiritual entity. Well, as I read this text from Ephesians 6, a second thing that troubles me is Paul's battle imagery. He describes the world under attack by the forces of evil. And so we are to put on God's armor and be prepared to fight it off. Now, just what are we as pacifists? We're people who refuse to participate in the military, people who refuse to don military uniforms, people who removed onward Christian soldiers from the hymnal. What are we to do with this imagery? And with all due respect to Paul, if he were here today, I would be inclined to tell him to just Take it easy. I want to say, you know, this battle mentality is no way to resolve conflict. You've got to drop that attitude of defensiveness. You've got to stop labeling your opponent as the enemy. You've got to build bridges to them. I might also remind him that seeing the world in such a hostile way can be dangerous. If you're not careful, you can justify demonizing anybody who disagrees with you. And this demonization can lead to holy war. It led to the Crusades in the 11th century, when Christians initiated a bloody war against the infidels, against Muslims. And in many ways, that battle continues today. This demonization led European powers to ravage and subdue native peoples in Africa, Asia, and the Americas because they viewed these people as heathen 
and somehow less than human. And demonization still leads to holy wars in our churches today. When people on opposite ends of controversial issues label each other as Pharisees and as heretics. So, as I read and as I studied this text, I found myself wanting Paul to put aside the battling and to work at bridge building. But then I remembered. Paul was perhaps one of the most significant bridge builders in the early church. He spent most of his missionary life sharing the good news with outcast Gentiles, building bridges to them and welcoming them into the family of faith. Why? Because the gospel, as Paul understood it, was a reconciling gospel. Christ is our peace, he tells the Gentile Christians in Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 14. Christ brought the Jews and the Gentiles into one family, and he broke down the dividing walls of hostility between them. At the heart of the gospel is a message of peace, and Paul was very aware of this. Perhaps that's why when Paul talks about doing battle, he does not talk about doing battle against human beings. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, he says. Rather, the struggle is against spiritual forces. Clearly for Paul, at the root of human life is a cosmic drama between the power of God and power opposed to God. In the New Testament, the power opposed to God is variously called Satan, Beelzebub, the strong man, and evil. Now, it's understandable that Paul and the early church, who were undergoing intense persecution, would have experienced the world in this kind of conflictual way. I think I get that. And our Anabaptist forebears might have seen and experienced the world in a very similar way because they also experienced some very intense persecution. But what about us? Most of us here this morning live safe, comfortable lives. Few of us are persecuted or threatened. Does this worldview make any sense to us now? Now, I confess, I am not one who goes looking for the devil behind every corner. But I have come to believe that the spiritual force of evil does exist in our world. After visiting Dachau in Germany and seeing the gas chambers in which millions of Jews were killed during World War II, after working with refugees and hearing firsthand about the horrors of war, about torture and rape, death from which they had fled and some of them had experienced, after watching billions of dollars every year being poured into military forces throughout the world that stoke the forces of death, there is no doubt in my mind that there is a force of evil in our world. 
a force that, in George McLean's words, bends individual wills and institutional functioning to its purpose. We see this force giving birth to many spirits in our world. It gives birth to the spirit of greed, a spirit that not only controls individuals, but as we have seen so well since 2008, it possesses and permeates and shapes entire economic systems. This force gives birth to a spirit of fear, a spirit that seizes us and drives us to build thick walls of defense around us and powerful weapons, be they words or fists or nuclear weapons, to attack those who would violate our boundaries. This force gives birth to the spirit of domination, a spirit that justifies winning at all costs, a spirit that idolizes power and grabs it at the expense of others, a spirit that promotes racism. And this force gives birth to the spirit of hatred, a spirit that justifies battering our enemies and viewing them as less than human. These spirits are powerful. As they find room in our lives, they demand our ultimate loyalty and our servitude. They enslave us. The question is, how can we respond? How do we keep these powers from infusing and dominating our lives? Well, Paul's answer is very clear. He instructs his hearers to put on the whole armor of God. Now, although we might not be very comfortable with Paul's choice of military imagery, it's worth noting the deeper meaning of his words. First, please note that Paul is not asking his readers to muster all their forces to defend themselves. He is asking them to clothe themselves with the strength and the power of God. The strength of God, not human strength, but the strength of God will be their protection. Second, notably absent from the list are offensive weapons. The lance, the spear, the bow, and the arrow. The arms Paul asks his readers to put on, which are the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the helmet, and even the sword were meant for protection, not for destruction. So in the end, the armor of God is a metaphor for the gifts, for the strength that God has offered us for our protection from the power of evil. What are these gifts? First, there's the belt of truth. A belt around a Roman soldier's waist showed his preparedness for battle. Truth is what we need to prepare us for the struggles and the challenges around us. Truth prepares us by renewing our perspective and helping us to see things as they really are. Truth helps us see that even though they claim authority, wealth, power, Fear, hate, and prejudice 
These things are not Lord of this world. Jesus is Lord. Jesus and his love are Lord of heaven and earth. Knowing that truth, we are prepared to face the powers that would bind us. A second gift is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, a breastplate was a piece of armor used to cover a very vulnerable part of the body, the chest, which houses the heart and the lungs. In the same way, righteousness protects our vulnerability. Now, when we think about righteousness, we often think about obedience to a set of ethical or religious or legal norms. However, from a biblical perspective, righteousness is about something different. Righteousness is about right relationship. It's about living in right relationship with God and with each other. When living in right relationship with God and with each other becomes the clear focus and the direction for our lives, we know where we're headed and we are not apt to lose our way. We are guided on paths that steer us clear of danger and the temptations that could harm us. A third gift is shoes, shoes that make us ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Now, shoes were important in battle. They provided sure-footedness and support for the journey. God, too, offers us sure-footedness as we seek to live out that to which we've been called. We're offered courage. We are offered conviction. We are offered confidence to live the good news and to share it with others. We are offered steady feet to stay the course, even when the going gets very tough. A fourth gift is the shield of faith. A shield was wielded to protect the whole body from injury. It was especially useful to ward off flaming arrows. And you know what? Flaming arrows sometimes fly at us. Sometimes they're arrows of fear or nagging self-doubt or worry. To counter these arrows, God offers us a shield of faith and invites us to trust, to trust in the one who lovingly brought us back to life and who walks before us and who protects us along the way. In addition to all these gifts, God offers us the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which gives us the power and the confidence and the guidance that we need to face the powers that confront us. So what does it look like when we finally put on this armor and in Walter Wink's words, engage the powers around us? It may look like an employee who challenges unjust practices in her place of work. It may look like a teenager who, even though pressured by peers, says no to things that are dangerous and destructive to self and others. It may look like a young couple who leave jobs, who leave financial security to share their gifts in voluntary service. 
Or it may look like an executive from a gas and oil corporation and several Mennonite Central Committee volunteers and a handful of mountain people eating chocolate chip cookies and drinking coffee together. This may sound like a strange meeting, but it actually took place in our living room in Kentucky 20-some years ago. It's when Doug and I were program coordinators and when Barry Friesen was our supervisor. One day, um, well actually a prominent gas and oil company was digging wells on the mountain where we lived, on just on the other side of the ridge from the farm where we lived. And one day, representatives from this company approached Doug and I about buying a right-of-way through the MCC property so that they could access these wells. They wanted to put a pipeline across our property to connect the wells to their national distribution line. Now, Doug and I are nice people most of the time, and ordinarily we might have cooperated, but this company had a really bad reputation. The basic problem was that it owned almost all of the gas and oil that lay below the surface of the ground in our area. And this company would do whatever it needed to do, regardless of the wishes of the landowners who owned the surface of the land, to get that gas and oil out of the ground. We knew this, and in fact, we were involved in supporting some people who had run-ins with this company. And so, in solidarity, our answer to this gas and oil company was no. Well, this gas and oil company was very persistent. They kept calling us back and asking us to reconsider our answer, and we were persistent too. We kept saying no. Finally, they said, well, why? And when we told them, they said, well, maybe we should meet face to face. Fine, we said, but we'd like some other people from the community to be there too so they can express their concerns. So we met in our living room one evening, Doug and I, and the representative from the company and a handful of community folks, and Barry Friesen happened to be there too at that meeting. He was visiting at the time. I was a little worried. Was this meeting going to turn confrontational? But somebody brought chocolate chip cookies, and I made coffee, and the gas and oil representative passed around pictures of his grandchildren. He expressed his interests, and we expressed our concerns, and the position of the gas and oil company didn't change, and neither did ours. We continued to say no. No to the right-of-way. No to the way people in our community were being treated. No to the history of injustice that has resulted in multinational corporations owning almost all of the mineral wealth of southeastern Kentucky. Our saying no to the powers was a very small gesture that did not bring an end to injustice in southeastern Kentucky. But it felt like a good thing. It felt like the right thing to do. I marvel now at the clear conviction that we had then about what we needed to do. No question in our minds. 
And I think, to be quite honest, the challenge for us after having left MCC as service workers is how to maintain that clarity of conviction. When you become comfortable, which we have, and when you're surrounded by people who are comfortable, which we are, it's very easy to, come, to become complacent. It's easy to forget about the pain and the injustice and the powers of darkness that are present in our world. So, how do we guard against this forgetfulness? Paul makes a very practical suggestion in verse 18. Pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. Prayer in the spirit of God is key to staying engaged with our world and the powers around us. Prayer of complete surrender to God and prayer for God's kingdom to come, which is what we pray every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We are praying for God's kingdom to come. This kind of prayer reminds us of who we are and of who God is and who God calls us to be. This kind of prayer leads to transformation of ourselves and perhaps ultimately of our world. In his book, Claiming All Things for God, George McLean writes, Prayer leads us away from acquisitiveness and toward sharing. It directs us from surface goods such as reputation and status and personal power toward inner goods of faith, hope, and love. It opens our grasping hand and encourages our surrender. It moves us from competition with our neighbor toward compassion for our neighbor. And it opens the door of intimacy with self, neighbor, and the Holy One. Karl Barth puts it another way, very simply. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of, an, uh, beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. My prayer for this congregation is that we never become so comfortable and self-satisfied that we become oblivious to the disorder of the world. May we not become forgetful of the pain and the brokenness caused by the spirits of greed and prejudice and hate. And when we encounter that disorder, may we not be overwhelmed. Rather, may we have the courage to rise up against it by clasping our hands in prayer and by arming ourselves with God's gift of protection and transformation. Amen. In the spirit, will you pray with me? God, our security, who alone can defend us against the principalities and powers that rule this present age, may we trust in no weapons except the whole armor of faith.
that in dying we may live and in having nothing gain all through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.